ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Is religious experience, including your awareness of God, all in your head? Just physics and chemistry in the brain, as skeptics often say? What does the science tell us? Hello, I'm Tom Gilson, and today's ID the Future brings you the first half of a conversation from our Discovery Institute sister podcast, Mind Matters News, where Dr. Michael Egnor, a neurosurgeon, interviews a neuroscientist, Dr. Andrew Newberg. We'll see what they have to say about this. Today on Mind Matters News, this is Michael Egner. I have the great privilege of interviewing Dr. Andrew Newberg, uh, who is a pioneer in the field of neurotheology. Uh, that is a field in which uh, he studies the theological uh, correlates of activity in the brain. And uh, so it's uh, my privilege, and I'm very excited to interview Dr. Newberg today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your program. Thank you, Andy. I just want to give our audience just a little summary of who you are. You are a professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences and the Director of Research at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Uh, in Philadelphia. And also you have been an adjunct professor of religious studies and a lecturer uh, on the biological basis of behavior program at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, You are a a prolific uh, researcher, uh, a physician, uh, and uh, you have published 10 books and uh, are really considered a, a pioneer and one of the world's experts on neurotheology. And uh, j- just going forward, uh, one of the book titles fascinates me, and I'd like to talk to you more about that. The book title is Why We Believe What We Believe, which I think is of great interest to our audience and is of great interest to me. So, Andy, could you uh, describe uh, your research to us, please? Sure. Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I, a lot of the work that I have been doing uh, has been in this field that has been ultimately called neurotheology. And um, to me, the the simplest definition of that term is uh, more or less, as you said, that it's really the study of the relationship between uh, our religious and spiritual selves and the human brain. There's a couple of important points that I like to mention about just what this field is all about. Um, First of all, for me, uh, it is what I like to refer to as a two-way street. It is not just science looking at religion. It is not religion looking at science, but it is both of them really looking at each other to help us understand who we are as human beings, recognizing that there's a biological part of ourselves, the brain and our body and so forth. Um, there's a spiritual part of ourselves, which can be you know, more specifically religious, but can also incorporate other spiritual activities. Uh, and of course, there's also a psychological and a social part, which are ultimately kind of all wrapped up in these different dimensions of who we are. The other thing I always like to say about neurotheology is that it, you know if it's going to work, for, at least for me as a term, I like to define both sides of that very broadly so that the neuro side um, is not just uh, neuroscience or neuroimaging, but it can include psychology, it can include anthropology. It can include uh, medical aspects, you know, how we, how different diseases and so forth are associated, you know, what happens when we develop different diseases and whether they may be associated with uh, different religious and spiritual experiences or how people turn to religion and spirituality in, in times of uh, health crises and so forth. 
Um, so, so the neuro side to me needs to be defined very broadly. And of course, theology itself is a very specific discipline where we're talking about taking the, the kind of the primary tenets, the, the sacred texts of a given tradition and, and trying to understand what they mean and how they relate to us as human beings. And we certainly can look at that from a, a brain-related perspective. How does the brain think about these things? You mentioned the book, Why We Believe What We Believe, um, which has, has always, I felt, been a very important book that we uh, put together and, and looks at beliefs, um, different experiences, attitudes, behaviors, and so forth. So again, for, for me, the theology side has to include all of these different aspects, including um, various practices like meditation and prayer, uh, other types of spiritual practices and experiences, and, uh, and and also really trying to look at this from a very global kind of perspective. So we're looking at you know, many different uh, traditions, and we can certainly talk about this in a little bit more detail later, but we've done brain scan studies, for example, of lots of different practices from almost every different tradition. And that to me is very exciting to be able to see the relationships and interrelationships and so forth that are very important for us in terms of understanding the overall impact of religious and spiritual beliefs and phenomena in our lives as human beings and how that has an effect on us. So um, a lot of the work that I have done, as I mentioned, has really been looking at the, the, using imaging studies, but there's other aspects that are really very important and, and I'm sure we'll get into them, but there's looking at different medical conditions. As I mentioned, um, we've done some phenomenological studies looking at how people describe different kinds of experiences. So, so there's, to me, it's an extraordinarily rich field uh, of work, a very multidisciplinary field that um, gives us, I think, a very exciting opportunity to find ways of, uh, of bringing religion and science together, which I think is important. And, uh, and again, I think, you know, to me, the ultimate ideal is helping us to understand who we are as human beings. In terms of brain scanning, what, what methods do you use to study the brain? Well, uh, we've been very fortunate to be able to use uh, a whole array of different techniques. Um, as one of my uh, old mentors used to say, if you're going to be a good carpenter, it's good to have a lot of different tools in your basket. And um, and I think to a certain extent, uh, we've been very fortunate to be able to have a lot of different imaging tools to be able to use. Uh, my background in, in the medical world is actually in nuclear medicine. And so that does involve um, injecting different types of radioactive tracers to look at different physiological processes in the brain or in the body. And we have done that with two main types of imaging, one called SPECT, uh, which is single photon emission computed tomography and PET positron emission tomography. Pretty similar in terms of how they work, that we inject this radioactive tracer. Maybe it follows blood flow or metabolism or you know, some aspect of the brain's function. And we inject that sometimes uh, while people are engaged in a particular practice like meditation or prayer, uh, sometimes a, a kind of before and after. Uh, we did an interesting study of people going through a spiritual retreat program. And, uh, and then we take a picture of the brain. We see where this material went, and it tells us something about the activity levels of the brain during different kinds of states. So we might uh, look at somebody while they're in prayer and compare that to a meditation state or compare that to a resting state or something like that. Uh, and the other main imaging tool that, that I've been fortunate to use is um, functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI, which uh, you know basically uses a big magnet to be able to look at, again, kind of different physiological processes like blood flow or neuronal activity. And, uh, and there too, we have looked at different 
practices while you know people are meditating or just the effect of doing those meditation practices in terms of things like anxiety or depression and so forth. And sometimes that has more of a therapeutic uh, bent to it. But um, uh, one of the, the interesting sort of advantages or disadvantages of these techniques with the MRI, you really have to be in the scanner while you're doing the practice. And sometimes that's, that's very doable. People can do a prayer practice or certain meditation practices lying very still in the scanner itself. But other practices are much more difficult to do that. For example, we did a really fascinating study of people speaking in tongues where they're making these different vocalizations and they're moving around and so forth. So by injecting them with this little uh, radioactive tracer while they're doing that practice, we can then scan them a period of time after they're done when they can lie still, but it kind of captures a snapshot. It captures what their brain was doing at the moment that they were doing the practice. And again, then we can say, okay, well, this is what we see going on in the brain when they're speaking in tongues, when they are saying a prayer or whatever. And um, so those have been the main tools. And, and, and other people have used things like uh, electroencephalography, EEG, to look at electrical changes in the brain. Um, so people are using a whole bunch of different arrays. And, and, and really, it's been a growing field of work to look at these practices from a variety of different vantage points using the technologies that we currently have. Of course, there's, there's an enormous uh, literature and body of knowledge on um, people's experience uh, in various religious disciplines. How does this add to our understanding uh, of spirituality? Uh, how does the use of you know functional MRI imaging, inspect imaging, and and, and EEG, uh, what does that contribute to our knowledge of religion beyond what we know from the great texts, from theologians, all, all those things? Sure. Well, and and I think that is an incredibly important point, which is that you know to me it it is a you know it provides a contribution. It provides an added perspective that perhaps we just haven't had the ability to to look at before. But in no way, shape, or form does it you know eliminate or get rid of what those great theologians and and what people through you know through the millennia have had in terms of their experiences and the beliefs that they hold. So you know, on one hand. Uh, you know, when if somebody is a deeply religious individual, that's what's important. Um, and so, in that context, uh, you know, being able to say that their parietal lobe did something or their frontal lobe did something doesn't really change. Uh, you know, what's going on in terms of their own beliefs. It's, it's, it's sort of like saying, um, you know, if we do a brain scan of somebody who uh, we're, we're trying to study love, for example, I mean, it doesn't mean that if we understand what areas of the brain are involved, that people should, you know, stop falling in love. Um, it, it just gives us this new insight into a little bit about how it works and how these beliefs and these experiences have an effect on us. And in that context, I think there is some real value because it does provide some knowledge about how being a religious or spiritual individual or doing a spiritual practice may actually have an impact, you know, not only on the spiritual part of who they are, um, but on the biological part and the psychological part as well. And so, um, you know, sometimes it's helpful for us to understand uh, a little bit more about how these different practices affect us. Um, are they affecting different areas of our brain? Um, you know, one of the things that I think is fascinating is that, you know, even when you talk about prayer, for example, well, there's so many different types of prayer and there's prayer that evokes powerful emotions. There's prayer that is deeply cognitive. There's prayer that is contemplative. And a, a valid question is, you know, how are they related to each other? How similar, how different are they? 
Uh, and again, you know, there's certainly the theological explanation about where there's similarities and differences, but does that correlate with something that's different in our brain? Is it tell us something about how our brain intersects with those different practices? And does that in some regard teach us a little bit, you know, if we think that uh, a particular prayer practice evokes powerful emotions, are we seeing areas of the, you know, of the limbic system, the emotional centers of our brain? turning on, um, does it, does that correlate with us in terms of, uh, does it correlate with the findings, uh, and this descriptions that people have of those practices? Um, I think the other thing too, I mean, there, there's always a, a more practical aspect as well, which, um, you know, is, is certainly important for a lot of people, which is, you know, when people engage in various spiritual practices for spiritual purposes, for religious purposes. Um, sometimes it helps them feel better. It helps them to cope. It helps to reduce their anxiety or their, their, their depression. And, you know, from a biomedical perspective, sometimes it's helpful to see, well, is that having an impact in the same way that psychotherapy may have an impact or even a medication may have an impact? Is it settling down our, our, our amygdala, our limbic system so that people are less anxious? Um, is it turning on certain areas of our brain to help us feel less depressed or bringing more dopamine into the brain to make us feel, you know, have a heightened mood? So I think that there's, you know, there's that ability as well. And again, you know, uh, this does not lead us down a path of saying, well, you know, if you have depression, we have a brain scan that shows that uh, that this prayer practice can help alleviate depression. You should do this prayer. Um, but what I think it does help us understand is that when people do have a depression, if they happen to find that particular prayer practice of, of value to them, maybe we understand a little bit more about how it's working. How is it helping them? And, uh, and, and I think that that helps us to understand a little bit more, you know, the, the overall relationship between our spirituality and, uh, and our psychological selves. And, and maybe the last way of answering your question, which to me is also quite fascinating, is the whole discussion of human consciousness. Um, you know, how do we actually think about ourselves, how to become aware of ourselves, aware of the world around us. And of course, in some of these, you know, very profound spiritual states, uh, mystical experiences and so forth, uh, people are able to really alter their their levels of consciousness and trying to understand that, uh, I think, may, may provide us an opportunity to be able to say something about uh, the nature of human consciousness as well. So, so I think in many ways, the answer to your question is that it kind of cuts across, you know, some very, what might be called esoteric ideas, you know, just about what, what prayer is and what these spiritual beliefs and experiences are and teach us something about how, how they operate within us, uh, to things about how the brain works, how the mind works, how consciousness works to the more sort of pragmatic, um, you know, even therapeutic kind of concepts about, well, if you do a prayer practice is this changing your brain in a way that may help you with depression or may protect you against Alzheimer's disease or something like that. And, uh, so I, I think there's a lot of very, uh, interesting and very exciting ways of, of taking it depending on what a particular person is interested in exploring. Certainly from, from what I know of your work, um, I, I, I'm very impressed. I think it's a fascinating topic and I, I, think, you're, I think you're doing wonderful work. There is a um, critique of neuroscience, uh, particularly cognitive neuroscience, uh, that has been um, uh, given by Roger Scruton, who's a, a philosopher. I, th I think he passed away recently. But, um, and he described neuroscience in, in, in a, an extraordinarily succinct but I think accurate way when he said that neuroscience is a vast collection of answers with no memory of the questions. 
<laughs> and um, what 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 I like and what I've read of your work and what you're describing is is that you you are pretty serious about the questions uh, because uh, one can get so lost in the uh, methodology and data produced by neuroscience that you really forget the questions that we're trying to trying to answer. Do you either have uh, or have or have you acquired any? particular um, metaphysical perspective on the relationship between the mind and the brain. Uh, is your work showing you a, a materialist perspective, an idealist perspective, a dualist perspective? Do you, has that entered into your work? Uh, well, thank you. I mean, those are all wonderful points um, and uh, extraordinarily challenging questions to answer. Um, yes. uh, <laughs> and I, have you, know, you I, solved mind-body problems? Right. <laughs> I, I figured it out last week. Um, <laughs> you know, it, um, well, going back to your, your your point about the critique. First of all, I mean, I, I think it's it really right on the mark. I mean, you know, so much. In fact, part of why to me neurotheology has a value is that it's not just about the science, but it is about the philosophical issues and the theological questions um, that we ultimately are really trying to answer. I mean, in, in my mind, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of times people ask me you know, how I got interested in this, and in many ways, um, it was really a philosophical pursuit to understand the nature of reality and how we as human beings understand that reality, and so. Uh, so much of what I think we need to learn in this context is, is is what are the questions and how do people process the answer to the questions? How do we go through our own thought processes? How do we engage them in different kinds of ways? And um, and so you know, from in fact, one of the things that we've started to get more into actually has been to actually ask people those questions. And that to me is, is also actually fundamentally important. That um, it's not just the great theologians who have cornered the market on answering these questions, but what does everybody think? You know, what do other people think about? God's existence and 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 how do they come to those ideas and and what does God mean and how does you know how do they understand what God is for example so I I think that you know part of what we want to do is explore the nature of those questions and then see where when we can bring some scientific uh, information into the discussion um, does it help us does it give us a new insight does it not really help at all. And, you know, I would say to answer your, your bigger question, when it comes to those metaphysical questions, I think that, uh, you know, from my own personal perspective, um, one, I think we have to be extremely careful about how we interpret results of, of any scientific study. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's always important to be open to open to the the materialist perspective, open to the supernatural perspective, uh, and and open to ways of perhaps trying to find uh, an integrated approach that kind of finds ways of linking them together, uh, whatever whatever that means. Um, and so, you know, in in my own uh, sort of heart of hearts, you know, a lot of what I do is actually very contemplative. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about those questions and how the the different pieces of information that I have. Uh, been able to look at it in terms of brain scans and so forth. You know, what does that actually mean, and how do we understand it? And and I guess, and I'm not sure if this is another answer to your question, but um, if my fundamental question is sort of, you know, how do we know what's real, and if what we perceive to be real is accurate? Part of what I, I've always thought about is is that in some sense you have to get outside of your brain, whatever that means. Um, look at the world and then see if what the way the world is out there 
is consistent with what you're thinking on the inside. Now, from a kind of cognitive neuroscience perspective, there's no way to do that. But from a a philosophical or theological perspective, a, a, a spiritual perspective, we have these experiences, you know, certainly the, the more intense spiritual experiences or mystical experiences where people describe that kind of a state, where they say that they have gotten beyond their brain, that they have gotten beyond their consciousness. They've become one with God. They've become one with the universe. And I, I, I can't, you know, I, I can't say that those are, you know, absolutely true either, but you know, boy, they're, you know, incredibly fascinating experiences that I think really require a lot of effort to explore and understand and understand them both from the perspective of the experiences themselves, as well as from the perspective of, well, how does that still connect to whatever's going on in a, in a physical world and in their brain? So, um, so I certainly don't have the answers yet. Uh, although I do, I have always said that if I ever figure it out, I will certainly let everyone know. As soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but 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 I do think you know I, I think we have to be really careful and uh, and 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 if you'll indulge me for a second I mean one of my favorite little stories is about the study that we did of a group of Franciscan nuns and it was a very small study and um, you know I had uh, the nun had come in one of the nuns had come in and we did her brain scans and I showed her what was going on in her brain when she was doing a kind of prayer called centering prayer versus when she was was just at rest and and after I showed her all the changes that went on in her brain she thanked me so much. She thought it was so wonderful to be able to see. Uh, you know, so thank you, Dr. Newberg, for showing me how the prayer practice, you know, r- really validates my ability to connect with God and it how, how it has an impact on me and my brain and my body. And she was, you know, really just so appreciative. And I said, you're welcome. And, you know, off she went. And I felt, you know, very good that I had uh, helped to make this nun happy. And then um, after we published our, our study, I had a call from the, uh, uh, the head of the uh, local atheist society. And I said, you know, somewhat sheepishly, hello, and and how are you doing? And they said, you know, I just wanted to thank you so much for doing this study and proving that, you know, God is nothing more than a manifestation of your brain's function and that, you know, religions are just, you know, we we can just reduce all religion to the brain. And I sort of said, well, you're welcome. (laughs) And, you know, off he went and he was happy. And, uh, you know, somewhere in, you know, in in the yin yang of the universe, there was, you know, I thought it's kind of amazing that one study can make a nun and an atheist happy at the same time. (laughs) But, um, uh, but, but it underlies the point, I think, which is that, you know, the beliefs and the biases, and and this is, you know, we talk about this in the Why We Believe book, um, you know, the beliefs that we hold going into whatever pieces of information we look at affect greatly how we interpret them. And so, you know, I always say, well, you know, all the brain scan is showing ultimately is what's going on in her brain when she has that experience. Um, it doesn't prove that God is or is not in the room with her. It's just showing you what's happening in her brain. And, um, but from that information, you know, how far can we go and what can we say about these experiences and their effects? And, and so I still think that while we may not necessarily be able to truly answer the metaphysical questions, um, certainly, you know, we're not going to do that just by doing a brain scan. Um, maybe by, by bringing all of these different elements together, we might get a little bit closer than we ever have before, but I, I don't know. <laughs> Just wanted to 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 ask: um, Do you see differences um, in the brains of people who are um, meditating uh, in a theistic and a non-theistic way? Uh, is there some is there something different about belief in God that you can see in the brain? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, 
I, we haven't specifically been able to make that kind of a differentiation in the sense of someone who believes in God and praying to God versus um, just uh, you know praying or just thinking about or just meditating. But part of the problem, I think, and this is you know one of the things I get very excited about as as a researcher, um, are some of the methodological challenges of doing this kind of research. And so, part of the problem is is that if you are meditating on God, well, you or praying to God, there's something that you're doing. You're you're praying. You're you're directing your mind towards something, which may be very different from somebody who is is directing their mind towards you know nothing. Um, so you know one of the questions would be like, well, should we? What would be the right comparison, and how would we look at that? Um, you know, there was there was one very interesting study that looked, for example, and and this may be a partial way of answering your question. They looked at people doing conversational prayer, and they found that when people were engaged in conversational prayer, talking to God, basically, that they activated a lot of the same language areas as they ha- did having just a normal conversation with, you know, uh, with another person. And, and I think that that, you know, th- there is an important point there, which is that, you know, we have, we have one brain, you know, each of us has one brain. So, you know, as far as we know in the moment, it's not that we have a different part of our brain that turns on or becomes active when we engage our religious and spiritual selves. But, you know, there, there, if we, if we pray to God, if we use our language, then, our language centers of the brain will turn on. If we feel the love of God, well, our amygdala or our limbic structures will turn on. Um, if we feel connected to God, then the areas that help us with our sort of spatial representation of ourself, you know, help us to feel connect, you know, that's, that's part of how that process goes. So in some sense, you know, I always like to say that there isn't like one part of the brain that is your religious and spiritual part. Um, it's really your entire brain because, you know, there are so many rich and complex ways in which we engage religious beliefs and it can be cognitive, emotional, experiential, behavioral, and so forth. Um, but so, so in many ways, you know, it, to me, it makes sense that, you know, we were given a brain that allows us to be able to have all of these different kinds of experiences and that there isn't just this, you know, extra part of ourselves that turns on when we walk into a church, for example, and, and begin to pray. But, but that being said, uh, you know, it will be interesting to, to see future studies, to see how much we can really differentiate different kinds of practices and those that are more theistic. Um, and of course, you know, it'd be really interesting also to see, a, you know, is there a difference between a Muslim, a, a Jew and a Christian all praying to God? Um, you know, are they, are they all doing it in a similar kind of context? Uh, how much do the beliefs that go along with their, with their tradition um, affect the way they think about their relationship with God. Uh, you know, if, if, a, if a Muslim is, has the concept of surrendering to God um, and a, a Christian may have a sense of connecting with God or being forgiven by God, then, you know, in and of itself, those could be differences, but not necessarily because of the actual perception of God. It's just how they, how they themselves are, you know, the actual being of God, of course, but it's how they're perceiving that relationship. So, so it's, it's a great question because it's a very complex, you know, we have to go through a very complex set of ways of thinking about that question and, and how we might best answer it. And then, and then keep pushing our, our ability to keep thinking about those questions. There's a uh, philosophical perspective on the mind-brain uh, relationship that um, goes back um, uh, into the 19th century, uh, it was uh, uh, William James commented on it uh, quite a bit, and that is the notion that um, 
it's not the case that the, that the brain generates the mind, but rather that the brain um, focuses the mind. Uh, that is, that the mind as part of the soul is a much a much larger thing than we ordinarily experience, and the the brain is a biological organ that puts the mind to work in the in the natural world, but that the right. mind is something fundamentally different from from the brain. And I've always been impressed that um, great mystics, uh, I, m- most of my acquaintances with the Christian tr- tradition, mm-hmm. um, speak of a dark night of the soul uh, and the necessity to suppress, uh, in, in some sense, suppress your brain activity or suppress your ordinary mental activities to allow oneself to connect to God and to, to connect to transcendent things. Do you see any evidence for that in the brain imaging? Well, you know, in some senses, yes. Uh, you know, again, we have to be careful about what we might conclude. But what has been fascinating to me um, is that in a number of the practices that we have studied where people do feel as if they have kind of released themselves or, you know, let go or um, kind of or surrendered, you know, to to God in some way. And, and this has been, you know, there, there have been a number of our brain scans that have looked at this. One of the areas in, in our brain that actually particularly shuts down is the frontal lobe. And, you know, our frontal lobes are typically involved in helping us to do purposeful things and to think what we're doing, uh, think about what we're doing and do purposeful behaviors. So it's intriguing to me that, that, these, that this area of the brain starts to shut down when people have those very intense kinds of mystical experiences, these intense spiritual experiences where they do feel like they're not in charge anymore. They are kind of allowing it to happen and, you know, going along for the ride, if you will. That's absolutely fascinating because that's that's exactly what the um, practical everyday experience of uh, of people who in, are, do contemplation or various mystical, uh, mystical prayer uh, try to achieve is to basically shut down their own mind to connect more readily to God's. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so I mean, there there is some evidence for that. And and of course, you know, the other area of our brain, which we have observed quieting down um, is the parietal lobe, which normally helps us to kind of generate, uh, take sensory information and generate our sense of self, our spatial representation of ourself. And during these practices, that parietal lobe starts to quiet down. Uh, we think also in a similar kind of context to kind of blur that boundary between self and other to kind of quiet down the ego self, if you will, in conjunction with the frontal lobe um, and and thereby, you know, helping to facilitate that kind of experience. But, but I also want to come back to your first point, which I think is also extremely important. We talk about this, you know, I've talked about this a lot in my work. What, you know, what is the direction of causality? And again, to me, this is a really fascinating, you know, neurotheological question, philosophical question, and biological question, which is, you know, what's generating what? And I think, you know, it is so fascinating to watch the, you know, individuals who have these intense experiences. It's fascinating to see what goes on in their brain. But again, it doesn't prove that the brain is generating the experience. It, you know, the brain itself, as you were saying, you know, could be can, you know, I mean, if, if I see a, I mean, just to be really simplistic, if I see an, a car outside, well, you know, my brain didn't generate the car, I, you know, the, the sensory experience that I have of the car is generated in my brain, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that's what's going on outside. And so if people are connecting to God, if people are connecting to some, you know, ultimate consciousness or something like that, you know, who's to say whether or not this is just our brain, you know, receiving that experience, as you mentioned, um, or is generating it. And, and I think, you know, this is where, again, I, I think 
there's wonderful theological questions, philosophical questions. And now we can bring in a little bit of the science and say, oh, well, you know, isn't this interesting that the frontal lobe quiets down? Does that tell us a little bit more about what's really going on? If somebody is generating language and their language areas have shut down, how is that happening exactly? You know, and, and does that push us a little bit further down the path towards investigating these kinds of questions? But, but I think still, you know, ultimately the experiences are, are kind of what's fundamental for us to understand. And, and that's why, you know, even in my own kind of uh, examination of this whole topic, to me, my own contemplative processes are very important because I think that helps me to continue to engage those questions. Well, that's it for today, but we'll pick up the rest of their conversation soon. We've been listening to Michael Egnor talking with Andrew Newberg about brains, minds, religion, and God, a conversation republished here by permission from Mind Matters News. For ID of the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.